Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman, and when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord afflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they set him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Okay, so um, one of the most famous um, Bible verses that isn't actually in the Bible is this one. God helps those who help themselves. I think if you asked most people in this country today, they'd probably, you know, is that in the Bible? Yes, they'd probably tick. It's the idea that we put in the hard yards, we do some good work, God adds that little sprinkle dust of his favor and his grace and his blessing, and it all comes good, doesn't it? Well, not only is that not in the Bible, but that is the opposite of what the Bible teaches. And yet as Christians, as those who believe and trust God's word, so often we can think and live as if this is true, don't we? We think that it will go well for us according to how faithful we are. We feel that God blesses us when we're doing all right and we're having a good day or a good week or a good month. And surely God will punish us when we mess up. How often do we kind of live our daily Christian lives as if those things are true? And what deeply sad and unsatisfactory spiritual lives we live when we live as if that is true. Laboring under the crushing weight of that false belief. Do you see, in the story we just read, Abraham goes to Egypt. He goes there desperate. He goes there empty-handed. Literally, it says he's um, under heavy suffering. And at the end, he comes back from Egypt, and he's full, and he's got great blessing. Literally, it's, it's heavy with wealth. And we would think, and probably most people around us today would think, well, what happened in that time in Egypt in the middle is Abraham made those are good choices, and he trusted, and he followed God, and he was faithful, and he went from one victory to the next as he saw the promises of God that we heard last week, God's people in God's place, enjoying God's blessing. One victory to the next as he saw that stuff work its way out in his life. Except that's not what happens at all. Last week, we, we kind of got into the, the story of Abraham's life, and it was a good start last week. He, he trusted God in faith. He gave up lots and gave up all he had, actually, to take hold of the promises of God. And this is the very next thing that happens of significance in Abraham's life, and it's a complete car wreck. It's a complete false start spiritually. 
In fact, in this text, what we're going to see today is Abraham manages to derail every single one of the promises of God by his own scheming and his own planning. And yet, and yet despite that, even through that, God's grace wins out. And God restores Abraham. And God gets everything back on track. And what happens from this point on is Abraham starts this lifetime journey of little by little, moment by moment, mess up by mess up, of being transformed by this amazing and outrageous grace of God's. We too can experience false starts in our spiritual lives, can't we? We too can experience stumbles in faith, but listen, it never, ever, ever threatens or derails or defeats the grace of God in your life. Early on in the Christian life, often it can be a time of excitement, vibrancy, positivity, expectation, hope. People often talk of it like this kind of honeymoon period where it seems that all's going well and it just kind of seems to be relatively straightforward. And many of us would have had that kind of experience, but then many of us would have also had the experience where you move on from that and the trials come. And the tests come. And you experience some spiritual losses. And, and I remember where it seemed like patterns of sin had come back into my life that I thought had long since been gone. And life isn't panning out as we hoped or expected. And, and we fear that our faith and our Christian life is not all that we thought. Well, listen, God, by his grace, really does go to work in that kind of situation in that kind of experience. And we can experience a similar transformation to Abraham, little by little, moment by moment, mess up by mess up of the amazing and totally outrageous grace of God in our lives. I could sit down. That's, that's the sermon. I want to I dig into that a bit more of you because, guys, this should just make us, our hearts sing. It should make our hearts sing. Listen, this, this is the first thing we see in this, this text. is Abraham's fear and his folly. This severe famine breaks out in, in, in the land of promise. And so Abraham makes a plan and he heads south to Egypt. And straight away, if, if you remember the sermon last week, it, it seems like a major part of God's promise is under threat. Abraham's forced to leave the land of promise. And so, and so he's away. I don't think this decision in and of itself is a problem. People in that part of the world would regularly go to Egypt in times of difficulty and trouble. The Nile River basically meant that Egypt was more resistant to famine and drought and those kinds of things. And so it was a sensible thing to do. And the text says that he's going for a while before he will return home. So it's not so much the fact that he's going. The problem is this. It is a decision that is driven by and shaped by fear and not by faith. And so it's a decision that ends up being foolish. Abraham does not seek God at all as he makes this decision. In fact, God is ominously absent from the whole episode that's going on here until much later on, and we'll see that. And so it seems that what happens from from last week uh, and the story that we saw last week to this week, Abraham's moved so quickly from faith to fear. And he's not so much denying God, but he's just forgetting God altogether. The tests come, he hits some bumps in the road, and he thinks, right, I've got to double down and sort this out myself. Come on, Abraham, what are you going to do? Come up with a plan, pal. And it leads to all manner 
of problems in his life. This is, this is Abraham's cunning plan. And listen, it was a plan that was born of old. It's from the old Abraham, not the new man of faith. We read elsewhere in Genesis 20, he had planned this contingency back along in Ur before God even, or as God came and called him. This insurance policy, in case God isn't quite going to be true to his word, in case God isn't going to keep us safe, I'm going to have my plan in the back pocket. And here it is. He pulls it out at this point, And the plan goes into action as he heads into Egypt. See, Abraham's problem is this. Sarai, his wife, is beautiful. And so he's scared that the Egyptians will kill him so they can take her. Or some Egyptian will kill him so they can take her as their wife. In that culture, a brother had a role as a protector of a woman if her father had died. And so any potential husband would have to kind of win the, um, win the support of the brother before they were able to, uh, to, to, to marry a woman. They'd have to get his favor and his blessing. So Abraham figures, listen, if, if, if they think that I'm Sarai's brother and not her husband, then they're going to treat me well for her sake because they're going you know, to want to win my favor and my blessing and my life will be spared. Now, this is one of those half-truths. You know when you can kind of technically justify it? Like, we, we know that she was kind of his, his half-sister. But a half-truth is a whole lie. And in the end, it's deceit that motivates what Abraham is doing. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's the best plan ever, isn't it? Because if you've got someone who's going to kill you if you're a husband to someone, I don't think the fact that you're the brothers are really going to stop them from taking your life. That kind of person is probably going to follow through anyway. But regardless, Abraham gets Sarai to lie because he's concerned for his own welfare. And the big issue here is Abraham's lack of trust in God and the promise that God made in verse 3, that God will protect and watch over his people. What he should have done, he should have said, Sarah, listen, there's this risk. I'm aware of this thing. I'm a bit concerned and worried about it. But listen, do you remember what God said? He said he's going to bless those who bless us. He will curse those who curse us. If God is for us, Sarah, who can stand against us? Let's trust him. He'll be good for his word. No, instead, Abraham was reduced. And this is a technical thing I read this week in a commentary to a scheming little man. A scheming little man, not only seeking, uh, not only failing to seek God as he takes decisions himself, but also not trusting God as he relies on himself and does it his way. And here we get this first snapshot of this massive theme in Abraham's life we're going to see play over and over again. The question is this, is he going to succeed by his own power or by God's promise? Which is it going to be? Abraham, are you going to hold on to God's plans and purposes and are they going to be delivered by your cunning and your scheming and what you can bring about? Or are you going to believe and proactively hold to and trust in the word of God in each and every situation? Well, in this situation, it seems that the promises of God, the word of God, not enough for him. They fly out the window as he hits the bumps on the road. How quickly we too forget the promises of God when life gets tough. How often we fail to seek his help in the midst of the trials of life. Like Abraham, we so often think and we so often try every single option in our own power and our own strength before falling on our knees in desperation before God. So often we're driven by fear 
We don't place our faith in the God who will. And, and when that happens, we're just driven to all kinds of foolishness. And it gets us nowhere. It's just a dead end of life. Now, in one sense, Abraham's schemes in Egypt, they go well for him. But it comes at a significant cost. This is a, a brutal culture of the day. And what happens is wealthy and powerful men, think they can have and take any woman they like for anything they want. And you think, well, it's just like our day, isn't it? It's absolutely tragic. So it says, Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's harem and becomes one of his wives. It's just a horrible situation for her. I think it's unlikely that Abraham anticipated this is what would happen. I think he thought, I'll play the brother card and I'll stall any potential suitors and kind of keep them at bay for a time whilst we're in Egypt. And we'll ride out the famine and then Sarai and I will escape back to Canaan and we'll be safe and all will be fine. He probably didn't expect Pharaoh to take an interest in, in Sarai, Sarai. And the problem is, is that Pharaoh doesn't have to win a brother's approval. He just takes who he wants, when he wants. And so he comes in and, and takes Sarai into his hurry. Whether Abraham intended or expected this to happen or not, the truth remains. In the end, he was willing to sacrifice Sarai to save his own skin. He offered up her life to save his. And it should have been the complete opposite. So here's the second part of God's great project. Under threat, the status is the people of God. Abraham's now effectively single. His wife has been taken as the wife of some foreign pagan king. And so the promise of this family and this great nation, well, that's as good as dead in the water. How can you have any kids or any family now? Listen, it is worth stopping at this point just to take note of how bad an example Abraham is at this point in what it looks like to be a faithful and a godly husband. We can learn from this, and we need to learn from this in a culture that is very confused and very messed up around these things and these issues and these questions. We can learn from this as men. Can I say to you men, do not be like that. Do not be like this and how you relate to women in your life. Especially your wife, if you have one. Christ calls us as men to take responsibility and to lay down our lives for our wife, if we have one. I think we can also say that the world would be a much better place if as men, this kind of character and this kind of love flavored our relationship with all the women that we engage with and we come into contact with. Now, I know this is deeply unpopular to speak about in our culture today in this way, but I am convinced that in the church as men, we've got to learn to display a renewed way of living as Christian men like Christ. So men, do you use women for your own benefit? Do you put your interests before theirs? Do you take what you can from them and then leave them high and dry? Do you sacrifice them to save your own skin? There's just so many different ways we could do that as men. Or, or will you and do you sacrificially serve? Do you love? Do you care? Do you protect? Do you provide? Do you prefer their interests before your own? Do you use your strength to serve rather than to dominate? 
do you lay down your life? Do you lay down your interests, even your desires and your preferences for their good? Just as Jesus laid down his for yours. Women, there's something here that that I think you can learn too as well on this. Have you settled for too low standards for the men in your life? Especially your husband if you're married. If you're unmarried, you have appropriately high expectations of men in general. And particularly if you're in a relationship with a boyfriend or something, particularly him because he's a potential husband. Will you only entrust yourself to someone who will honor you, who will care for you? Who will sacrificially serve and love you? Will you only entrust yourself to someone who will take hits to protect you? Who consistently demonstrates that they'll put your needs above their own? Will you only entrust yourself to someone who knows and loves Christ and lives like him? Don't settle for any less. If if you're a woman and you're married, have high ambitions for your husband to love you, to serve you, to care for you, to put your needs first. Pray for him in that. Encourage him towards that. This is a high and a difficult calling. Now listen, we, we all need grace. None of us is perfect. I could tell you, so many ways that I fall foul of these things. But in the church of Christ, as those who know the love of Christ, who gave himself for us, surely we have to be, surely we can be different to the world around us. And maybe together we can do more to stand for truth, for justice, for righteousness in this area as we live in and we live for the kingdom of God. Let's learn the lessons that texts like this teach us. Let's do it together. You see, see, as as bad as Sarai has it, Abram has it really pretty good in this text. He is treated well for her sake. So she suffers and he prospers. He becomes increasingly successful. He becomes filthy rich. We're talking kind of Premier League footballer rich. He acquires all of these various animals and these servants and and some of these are markers of prestige in his day. It's like he's got a um, you know, top-of-the-range Tesla and a Bugatti in his garage. It's, it's this kind of stuff that, that he acquires in, in his time in, in Egypt. Uh, and it seems that having started down this route of deception, Abram just gets caught up in the whole thing. And so when like, the good stuff starts coming in, he can't, can't say no, he can't turn it down. This is just an absolutely tragic moment in his life. He's gaining the whole world, and yet he is losing his soul. What foolishness has come from fear, and at what great cost? This is just the pits. And it seems like there's no hope. It seems like there's no way of turning this round. And this is where the Lord enters in and changes the story. So far, it's all Abraham. Now it's all going to be God. Verse 17 to uh, 13, verse 4. Verse 17, the Lord uh, gets involved. And at first, you might think, 
uh, that his intervention is more of a problem because he comes and he inflicts these serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household. And so here is the third part of God's great project now under threat. Abraham was going to be a blessing um, to the people from other nations. And here Abraham is in Egypt. He's enjoying a good time. He's having a great blessing for sure. But his presence brings cure and disease to the nation of Egypt and to Pharaoh and his people. Not a blessing. He's been a wholesale failure to be the funnel through whom uh, the, the, the blessings of God come to the nations. But listen, this affliction of Pharaoh is an act of God's sovereign grace. Because what it does is it exposes Abraham's schemes. It keeps Pharaoh from greater sin. And in grace, it brings Abraham back in from the cold. So Sarai is in Pharaoh's harem. But it seems that the relationship has not yet been consummated uh, as, as happened then. It took a bit of time because there were so many women around. And so properly, she is still Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh gets wind of what's gone on and, and he summons Abraham to him. He questions him uh, and he sends Abraham on his way with his wife and everything he had under this kind of armed guard of, of protection. Now, Abraham is totally showed up by Pharaoh here. When Pharaoh realizes what's going on, he, he does the right thing. It seems that he may have heard of God's covenant promises with Abraham and, and be aware of them. And there's a hint here that he acknowledges that and how he responds and sends Abraham on his way to, to do what God has said. The serious disease has brought some conviction, it seems, to, uh, to Pharaoh. And, and he realizes that God is for Abraham and, and despite Abraham's shady dealings. He, he, he says he must go and, and go as God ha, has said. And Abraham in response is just, there's nothing to say. I mean, what can he say? He's messed up big time. At this point, I guess he realizes it. And, and so in Egypt, there's no, there's no altars that are built to, to worship God. There's no proclaiming the name of the Lord. If you think to last week in, in Egypt, Abraham's witness there, his character there, it's just totally compromised. So there's nothing to say but to go. And yet, here's the thing. The big story for, for us here is that although Abraham is faithless, he gets lavishly blessed. Lavishly blessed. God's amazing grace doesn't leave him in the dust, but brings new life out of his fear and out of his faithlessness and out of his folly and out of Abraham systematically compromising every one of God's promises in his rebellion and his just stupidness. And yet he comes back home from the promised land of Egypt and he's got his wife and he's got all of this great wealth and all of this gold and this silver and this livestock and he's just filled up with blessing and here's God's people in God's place and they're enjoying God's blessing again. And it's all of God's grace. How did that happen? How did it happen? He was a total and utter knucklehead. He was just an absolute idiot. He was immoral. He was faithless. He was a fool. He lied. He, he let everyone down. And somehow, God's grace just cuts through all of that. Despite making a right mess of it, God's purposes in his life could not be stopped. They were still worked out. It's not the last time we're going to see it in Abraham's life. 
It's not the last time we're going to see it in our own lives. I can assure you of that. This is the absolutely outrageous and amazing grace of God. It's not what Abraham deserves at all. And yet it is what he has from God. The God who makes, the God who keeps his promises, the God who who often does that despite us. Grace, Callum said earlier, is good things from God for bad people, for undeserving people. It's not only God not giving us what we deserve, but it's God giving us what we don't deserve. This, This is, for me, a really simple and most helpful way to remember it is God's riches at Christ's expense. Aren't you glad about this? That Jesus didn't treat us like Abraham treated Sarai. That Jesus didn't keep himself safe while we suffered. Aren't you glad that instead Jesus sacrificed his own skin so that we might be safe, so that we might be protected? That he laid down his life on a cross so that he could save us, so he could save me from great harm. And do you know why Jesus did that? One of the reasons is because he believed the promises of God, because he trusted the promises of God in a way that Abraham didn't, and I so often don't. And, and so by doing that, in Jesus doing that for us, he has secured for his people this outrageous and this amazing and this totally undeserved and this lavish and this unrelenting and ongoing grace and favor of God. That is what we receive and that is what we experience today. And that means that in the midst of messing it all up, in the midst of your fear, in the midst of your unfaithfulness, in the midst of of us forgetting God and and who he is, and in the midst of us turning to our own ways and our own schemes and our plans and, and our foolishness, we still have his favor. We still have his love. We still have his kindness and his righteousness and his forgiveness and his life and his blessings and his goodness and his approval and his delight over us. That is what grace is. This is absolutely crazy. You know, as Christians, we, we just kind of, we sing along to amazing grace, and it's, it's old news, but this is not old news. This is absolutely crazy. And there's nobody else, nowhere else, who offers anything like this. But it's what you, if you're a Christian today, have in Jesus. And if you're not yet a Christian, it's what you can have right away if you want to hold on to it by faith. Let, let me encourage you with this. This reality is at its truest, at its most profound, when we most need it. Grace is a reality that shines brighter, that increases in power, that we experience more deeply the worse we get, the lower we fall, the more we've messed up, the more we realize that we really don't deserve this, or we're really not sure if we can have it, that is exactly when God's grace goes to most powerful and amazing work. That's when it's most freely available, available to us. We, we, we just sang together, through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace 
will lead me home. It's one of my favorite lines that we sing because it's so helpful to me. God's grace has brought me so far. It has been enough for me. All of the things, all of the dangers, toils, and snares I personally have been through and you personally have been through, God's grace has been sufficient, has been enough, and has brought you this far. And so his grace will be enough to continue in the future to the dangers, toils, and snares that will come. They're unknown to me as yet. But his grace will be enough for me. As low as I go, as dark as it gets, his grace will be there. God's grace is not because of and it's not for my faithfulness, but it's because of and for my faithlessness. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. Here's the final thing that we see in this episode. God's grace not only restores Abraham, it not only gets and keeps God's promises on track, but it transforms Abraham. It transforms him. And so he's a renewed, at the end of this, he's a renewed worshiper of God and he's a renewed witness to God because encounters with God's grace always change us, always transform us. They never leave us the same. So the guy who went to Egypt in his own power and his own schemes, basically ignoring God altogether, coming under a heavy hardship and, and coming close to losing it all, he comes back uh, to, to the land with his marriage intact, enjoying the blessing of his heavy wealth and his potential to become a great nation under the blessing of God. And Abraham finds his way back to Bethel, where last week we saw that he built an altar to God. And once again, he worships God there. And once again, he calls on the name of the Lord. Remember, not a private prayer, but a public declaration. This is who God is. This is what he's like. This is what he's done in my life. Listen, I've got some stuff to tell you about my trip to Egypt. This is God's. See, God's grace in his life gives him fresh reasons to worship, fresh reasons to and things to tell others about and to say to others that this is what God is doing and how good he is to his people. This isn't about how great I am. This is about how great God is. You know, we really got to stop treating the grace of God like a, a get-out-of-jail-free card. Phew, I got away with that one. I can just go on with my life in the same way as before, and then I'll come and I'll, I'll cash in on it again when I get myself in a spot of bother again. When my fear and my folly put me in a hole, oh, great, grace of God bails me out. No, God's grace is a powerful change agent. As we experience and we encounter God in, in his grace, we're transformed from fear to faith, and we're transformed to relying on self, to relying on God. We're, we're transformed from forgetting his promises to holding on to his promises, come what may. Abraham is a man of faith. But listen, he had to learn how to become a man of faith over a lifetime. And we're going to see that. There's moments like this, and there's more moments like this to come. God is faithful, even while he was faithless. Each of us has these these daily, these weekly experiences of God's grace. Each one is a powerful influence on our soul. It's intended to bring us back to faith. It's intended to bring us back to worship. It's intended to bring us back to a witness to the faithfulness and the goodness of God. 
This is, this is a story that could so easily be dominated by Abraham's schemes and, and, and his plans and, and how they threatened to derail the promises of God. Yet in the end, it's a story of grace. It's a story of God's faithful work. It's a story of God winning out in and through that. It's a story of God keeping his plans on track, no matter how much it looks like we mess it up. And it is a story of Abraham being restored and transformed. This is a story of God's faithfulness and God's goodness. This is a story for you today of God's ability to bring his purposes, to bring his promises to bear in your life. And so this is a story that ought to make our hearts sing. This is a story that means we can walk out of this building with a spring in our step. Even amidst the situations that I know some of us are walking through. Because it's a story of God's grace that goes deeper still. Let's pray and then we will sing. And we've got lots to sing about. Oh, Jesus, I just, I just thank you for your amazing grace, your outrageous grace, your undeserved grace, your loving kindness. It's not there for me on my best days, although it is. But it's really there for me on my worst days, in my worst situations. And it's there for my brothers and sisters on on their worst days and their worst situations. Oh, Jesus, with your grace, your kindness, your love, your presence, your favor, your, your very being with us and amidst and close to us. Would you powerfully work in our hearts to transform us? From people of fear into people of faith. From people who forget to people who remember. From people who are half-hearted to people who are wholehearted for you. Thank you, Lord, that we have your grace. There's nowhere else we can go, no one else we can go to for this. As we come to you again, we open up our hands that are empty and we ask you to fill them up. Out of your kindness, not because you owe us, not because we deserve it but because you are good and your grace and your mercies are new for us today. We praise you and we love you. Amen.